0: I love war movies. Anybody with me? Yeah, I do. I love them. Uh, I mean, and I got I got several ones that that, that I've just I've memorized them. You know, Band of Brothers. I got every CD. Uh, it's my favorite television series of all time. Every July Fourth, we watch The Patriot. In the rainy household. About twice a year, but usually at least once around Memorial Day, We Were Soldiers makes an appearance on my television screen. I got a lot of war movies that I really like, but I, I particularly like the ones I love best involve not only the battles, but the strategies that are involved. And even more particularly are the work of intelligence operatives who will oftentimes introduce deception at a level that could, that, that could deceive entire armies. Those are the kind of movies I love. One of my favorite all-time movies in that particular genre is the movie Bridge of Spies starring Tom Hanks, and, and it's it's about this whole, you know, can we trust the Russians, can they trust us, uh, all of that kind of thing. And so several months ago, uh, my wife and I went to see another one of these movies a, movies, a movie called Allied, and I know what some of you are thinking, and you have a right to be jealous. Yes, my wife goes with me to these movies. Have I mentioned that I love that woman? I do. And so we went to see this movie allied together. Brad Pitt is the main character in this. He's a Canadian who's working with both American and British intelligence to try to root out any Nazi falsehoods that may be hiding or, you know, what can we do? So he's working for British and American intelligence. And in the process of his duties, he meets a young woman who's a French spy in the North African desert. And after an operation together, uh, just to make a long story very, very short, they fall in love. They get married. They have a baby. Everything's great until just before that kid starts walking, this Canadian who's been working with the British and Americans discovers through a number of different circumstances that this woman he's married to doesn't actually work for the French. She's actually a Nazi spy. And so it's this phenomenal, riveting movie about a man who's married to a woman, sleeping with a woman, building a life with a woman that he thinks is his ally, but who turns out to be his enemy. And in the middle of all this, of course, I look at Mrs. Rainey and I say, do you work for the Russians? And she just looked back at me and didn't miss a beat. She said, if I do, you'll never know. So we're having some fun with all of that. But but, when I think about movies like that, particularly when I think about someone that could get that close, be that intimate, and still be an enemy, you know who I think about? I think about our enemy. We've been in the midst of a series called The War. We've been talking about spiritual warfare and how it is that that we can combat our enemy. We've got to know who he is. And when we look at, at one passage of Scripture in particular in 1 Corinthians 11, we see the following about our enemy. Paul tells us, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan, contrary to popular belief, will not show up at your door with a triangular tail and a pitchfork and horns dressed in a red suit. That's not how he rolls. That's not how he operates. In fact, he doesn't even look that way if that's your picture of Satan. You've been watching too many Bugs Bunny cartoons or maybe reading a little bit too much Dante. Satan comes to us in all manner of temptation and lies in a very attractive package. Satan, much like a foreign intelligence officer, will appear to be your ally. There's an old country song by Kenny Chesney that talks about a guy in alcoholism recovery who says that's exactly what happens. The devil takes your hand and says, have no fear. Here's another shot. Right? That's what we're talking about. He's, He's not blatantly presenting himself as evil. He presents himself as an angel of light, all the while pushing us toward our own destruction. Some of you may know what the word gaslighting is, particularly if you've been in counseling situations and maybe you've been the the subject of or the victim of abuse of any kind. You know that gaslighting is a, a form of mental or psychological manipulation. Most often it happens again, in an abusive relationship. And abusers have several things that they will do in order to keep control in that relationship. One of the things they will do is they will minimize the wrong that they have done. I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this. All I did was, they'll minimize. Another thing they'll do is they'll blame shift. All right, abusers are very popular, uh, very well known for looking at the abused and saying, why are you making me do this? That's another practice of an abuser. Still another is redirection. This is when you invalidate your victim's feelings by pointing to something else as more important. In the wider world of politics, this is called whataboutism. Well, I know what I did was bad, but look at what he did. Look at what you did. And then that oftentimes ties itself back into redirection. Why do you make me do this? And then, of course, a big part of what it means to gaslight is secrecy keeping obvious behaviors behind closed doors. And what happens through all of these, frankly, very wicked manipulative processes is the abuser creates an alternative reality. That's what gaslighting is. The abuser creates an alternative reality in which the abused is trapped and sometimes they will live in that way for years. In many domestic abuse situations that I've dealt with as a pastor, gaslighting was initially the cause. And I got to tell you, to be honest with you, I didn't understand this fully until just a few years ago. It used to absolutely knock me cuckoo. I could not figure out for the life of me why a woman would sit in front of her pastor when I could see the bruises on her body and say to me, it must have been my fault. I did not get that at all. Until I discovered what gaslighting was. I mean, until I discovered that, I mean I like the only solution I could think of is to go find a bunch of male deacons and let's go find this dude and take care of business. You know what I mean? But once I discovered this, wait a minute, what abusers actually do is a lot more subtle and a lot more damning than I started to understand. And then I thought, these are people who pattern their entire lives and all their practice after their enemy. Satan. All of this is satanic at core. And the scriptures tell us that at the cross and the resurrection, Satan was stripped of every authority over us, but there's still one skill he has that he uses masterfully, and it's deception. He will tell you, for example, during temptation, this is no big deal. I don't know why you're so worried about this. Just go on and do it. And interestingly enough, the minute you do it, he switches gears and he says, Now, what's God going to do with you now? God doesn't love you. God would never take you back. He will tell you when you are at fault, you know what, something else or someone else that made you do this. Other lies, Satan tells us to trap us in his own alternative reality may look something like this. There's no such thing as absolute truth. I don't know why you're appealing to that. God wants you happy. You need to do whatever makes you happy. You are the exception to the rule. You should be treated differently. I know the Bible says this. This comes out a lot of times when I hear people go, well, pastor, I know what the Bible says, but you know, you don't really know my story. And my answer is usually, you know what? I'm anxious to hear your story, but let's not violate the word of God while you tell me your story, okay? Let's not use your story as an excuse to continue living in disobedience. And then sometimes he switches tactics And he will control you with lies like this. God hates you. God is unapproachable. Why would you even think that he would hear your prayers? And I've seen more particularly when someone is suffering from addiction or assault, or they've been a victim of trauma, or they're struggling with mental illness. And in those four cases in particular, I have heard Satan's lies breathe through those people themselves. You are all alone and nobody cares. These are the webs of lies that our enemy traps us in. And if allowed, that sucker will live rent-free in your head and he will just keep spinning those yarns until you are so entrapped that you will think there is no way out. And so to fight against those schemes, the Lord has given us a piece of armor. For the last several weeks we've been in a series called the war and we've been talking about what does it look like to wear the belt of truth? Am I the same person in private that I am in public? What's it look like to to don the breastplate of righteousness for me to understand what God's will is and to obey his every command regardless of what it may look like? The cost is that I would make righteous choices and in doing so I would be protected from the schemes of the enemy. What does it look like to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace? Those old hobnail boots that the Roman soldiers would wear that would keep them standing on solid ground even if it undulated that would help them to stand against the enemy. And what does that look like for us to wear the gospel, to stand in its confidence and also to spread its truth? And then the shield of faith, what's it look like when the enemy aims all of his flaming darts at me, He, he lights fire onto the end of it, that fire grows bigger by the time it comes down on me, it looks like the sky's on fire and descending upon me. What does it look like for me to have a faith that is so impenetrable that I can throw it out in front of those fiery darts and not only prevent them from harming me, but continue to move forward in faith well today we get another piece of armor in verse 17 of ephesians chapter 6 we are told this take the helmet of salvation now in the context of, of paul's letter to ephesus this is a a military head covering for protection it looked something like this right except it had a head to go with it but isn't that cool isn't that great Anybody remember Tim Conway's character, Dorf? There you go. Meet Dorfus, the Roman soldier. Uh, I got that idea from Mike Gleis. So, so we've got this sense in Ephesians of this military head covering that protects me from attack. I'm an old football player, and if you football season is getting ready to start. Can anybody say praise the Lord? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. And so uh, here's the one thing that always scares me, even now as a guy who's been on that field. It's it's in the middle of a play when I see a guy's helmet come off. Now, there's a side of me that thinks it's really cool, but there's another side of me that thinks, boy, somebody better blow Russell really quick before that guy gets hurt really badly, because a missing helmet is you're you're just a half a step from a fatal blow. So, in a sense, what Paul is describing is is that kind of covering. But there's another covering that's in view here as well when you consider the wider witness of Scripture, because when you cross-reference the use of this Greek term for helmet with its use uh, in Greek translations of the Old Testament in passages like Exodus 38 and 39, you, you come to understand this word was not just used by the Jews as to describe a military head covering, but also a priestly head covering. And that's appropriate, I think, given the fact that this helmet is the metaphor that Paul uses for the term salvation. So this part of the panoply of armor is a covering of assurance by the Lord. When Satan's lies entice me into that alternate but damnable reality, whatever it is, okay, and like I said, 99% of the counseling that I have done That's exactly what's going on. There's sin and someone has been convinced by Satan that there's an alternate reality that they can live in. And it's a damnable one. And the only way out is for them to escape that and get back into God's truth. Well, that's what the helmet stands for. It reminds me of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, provides a rescue. It provides a deliverance from any satanic entrapment. Some of you may... uh, may have sins that keep leaving you entrapped. I have no doubt, given just what I know the statistics show, that there are men in front of me right now that can't stop looking at pornography. I have no doubt, given the statistics in this area, that there are people in this room right now that in the last 48 hours or sooner, you've had a needle in your arm. I know that. You don't need to hear that as a a statement of judgment. You just need to hear there's a pastor who understands that, who sees that. I'm aware of that reality. Some of you suffer from unjust anger. Some of you suffer from self-righteous judgmentalism. There's all manner of sins that we struggle with and so many of you regardless of the sin don't understand why Satan keeps winning. Like why does he keep getting one up on me? Well, it may be that you don't understand yet that spiritual warfare at the fundamental level is mental. It starts in the mind. And to wear the helmet of salvation is to daily live a truth that Paul points out to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse he says, "We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ." Now, most of the time in the evangelical world, when that text is quoted, it's it's, it's applied in an apologetic manner. In other words, this is how you defend your faith against Islam or against Judaism or against Hinduism or against dialectical materialism or atheism. Is you needed to destroy all those arguments? But that's not really what Paul's getting at here this is a battle that's that's a lot less external those may have some legitimate application this is more of an internal battle arguments that need to be destroyed even in my own i mean it's got to start in me doesn't it like how am i ever going to defend the truth the outside world if i'm not convinced of the truth in my own heart and so that destruction of a lofty argument and lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of god I've got to be honest enough about my own soul to admit that many times that happens in my heart. You ever think you're smarter than God? You ever think you're more literate than God's Word? That can happen, can it? And so when we get to that point, Paul says, this is what the helmet of salvation is about. It's about ultimately taking every thought captive. It's not about me destroying intellectually somebody that I disagree with. It's about me making sure that every thought that comes through my mind has been anointed by Christ. Take every thought captive. And so the helmet of salvation is about developing the mind of Christ, a mind that's new and a mind that is immersed in the salvation of the Lord. And there's a couple things about this helmet. First, it's given by God we read these words again. we've, We've seen Isaiah 59, 17 before. He has put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is not our armor. This is God's armor. This originated with him, and he now gives it to us so that we can have victory in the battle. Our responsibility is to take it up. The second thing we see about this helmet is that it's the beginning of the battle. Just like the belt of truth, like the breastplate of righteousness, like any other piece of the armor that we're going to be looking at through the rest of this summer series. You can't go out onto the battlefield without it. You're like a football player going out in the middle. You're like an offensive lineman getting down in a three-point stance with no helmet on. You can't engage in spiritual battle unless you are mentally ready for that battle. You have to take up that helmet, Paul says, daily. Let me show you four ways that that happens. Knowing who you were, knowing who you are, knowing what God has done, and knowing what you must do. Four very simple things. Let's start with the first one. Knowing who you were. There's a reason that Paul gives this command to receive the helmet of salvation. It's because we don't automatically have it. You know, Oftentimes in the church, I'll hear someone say, "Well, I've always been a Christian." Now, most of the time, what that what's said is not actually what's meant. What. What's actually meant in a moment like that is, you know, pastor, I've just, I I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. I've had, I always had a strong church family around me. I've never known a time when I wasn't surrounded by people who love Jesus. I've never known a time when people didn't push me toward Jesus. Uh, I don't, and many times it means this, of course, I put all of my faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Pastor, I don't, I don't, if you're asking me to remember a date and a time, I really don't have that. But what I do have is complete assurance in the death of Christ for myself sin and his resurrection that guarantees me life i would say to you bless you brother or sister that's amazing but occasionally when people say i've always been a christian they mean exactly what those words indicate which is i've never been a non-christian but according to the witness of scripture if you've always been a christian you've never been a christian And so we've got to start on this right foundation that all of us have some past that has to be reckoned with. You've got to remember who you were. Who you were. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says the following, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us To the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a general description of all people who know Christ. They were once alienated from him, they were once in the domain of darkness, and they have been translated through the redemption that is in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul reminds us as well in 1 Corinthians 6 of all the ways that we have rebelled against God. And then he says of those who are Christians, such were you. This is who you were. This is the thing about God. It's it's one thing to wallow in your past. That's not what we're getting at here. It's It's quite another thing to be honest about your past. And the Lord, through his word, because he loves us, doesn't hesitate to tell us the truth about ourselves. Because he understands that, that that's part of the journey, is having a, a healthy understanding of what it once meant to be without God. Now, that how, how, does that seem counterintuitive to you? It's okay to admit that sometimes that seems counterintuitive. I think about uh, my wife, Amy, and, and we've been married. That woman, you know, she's put up with me for 25 years now. Yeah. I'm waiting on you. Yeah, there you go. I'm waiting on that. She's got that and a trip to South Florida coming. So um, now when I met her, she was already a follower of Jesus. So I've never personally experienced life with her before she was a follower of Jesus. So even as I speak these words to you, it seems very counterintuitive if I'm going to make that application to Mrs. Rainey. Because I've never known that. But actually what the scriptures tell me is that that's exactly who she was. And it's exactly who I was at one point. Enemy of God, alienated from the promise, cut off. If you think you've always been a Christian, this is where you still are. I'm not saying you that to judge you. I'm saying that because I love you and because of the word of the Lord would commend for you to recognize where you are and come to Jesus today. Today. Because some bad things are going to happen if you keep living under that delusion. Let's forget about hell for a moment, although that too is a very real possibility for you. You're going to, What you're doing is you're walking in a web of lies that Satan has designed for you. You've allowed your enemy to gaslight you into thinking that about yourself or about someone else. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. See, if I don't see my wife, not only for who she is, but who she used to be before Christ, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to put her on a throne eventually that she doesn't belong on. I was listening to a song the other, uh, this has been a couple years ago, actually, because I had my now soon-to-be 14-year-old son in the car with me, and, and I made the horrible, horrible mistake of tuning to a station that was playing bro country. Now, if you like bro country, that's fine. You're not lost. You're not going to hell. You just have incredibly bad taste. All right. If you're going to listen to country, listen to real country. Amen? Oh, that was awfully weak. Some of you people are listening to Florida Georgia Line, aren't you? Yeah. Well, this was a group, and, and it's fine. You can, you can listen to boy bands and cowboy boots if you want to. But I was, I was uh, I'm sorry. I'm having a little too much fun with this, aren't I? I was listening and this song came on, praising a woman, H-O-L-Y. Now that was an acrostic that sounded like, you know, it had some other meaning to it. But during the chorus, he was actually saying to his beloved, you are holy, 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 holy. There was this crescendo, it kept getting louder. And I didn't want to make a scene, so I just kind of reached over. But under my breath, I, I guess I couldn't help it. As I'm turning the station, I'm like, I hate this song. And my teenage boy looked at me and he says, Dad, why do you hate that song? Isn't it about Jesus? And I said, son, this is precisely the reason that I hate it. Those words should be about him, but they're not. See, if we don't remember who we were, contrasted with who we are, we're going to deify other people in our life. Brothers and sisters, that's where a lot of divorce comes from. Because when you deify that other person... Sooner or later, especially if you're sleeping in the same bed and picking up each other's underwear, somebody's not going to act like God. And that deification will turn into demonization. all All that comes from putting your your other, the other spouse on a throne they don't belong on. Amy Rainey is a beloved woman of God. I am thankful for the blessing of being with her for a quarter century, but she is not, and yeah, she's nodding right now. Don't worry about it. She is not worthy of that level of praise, and neither is her husband. You want to know how we lasted for 25 years? Recognizing that. Not expecting too much out of each other understanding what we used to be will help us in that regard and, and the same is true for any of us one of, one of the reasons that Paul had such a powerful apostolic ministry is because he never forgot what it was like to be separated from God. Again he wasn't wallowing in all the guilt of everything he did the guy was a he was basically a terrorist. He was a domestic terrorist. He went around killing people who didn't agree with him ideologically. He doesn't wallow in that, but he's honest about it. He says, that's where I was. And then in Philippians, he says, I chucked all of that for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He never forgot what it was like to be the chief of sinners, to be that person. And that's what made his ministry so powerful. Because without that understanding... Your enemy and mine can trap us into some really false delusions about ourselves, and we think that we might deserve something from God. Well, you do deserve something from God. We all, every human being that has ever walked this earth, that walks it now, or that will walk it in the future until Jesus comes back, deserves one thing from God. Do you know what that is? Hell. Thank you. Judgment. Wrath. Because of the substitutionary death of Christ, we do not need to receive what would otherwise be coming to us. That's the essence of the gospel. But we don't get that if we've, if we've built up this false narrative of ourselves that, Jesus, that, that, that Satan wants us to believe. And we start believing God owes me something. The gospel, the truth of our salvation, it reminds us on a daily basis of who we were. But again, not just so we can wallow in guilt, but so that we can know by contrast who we are. So it's not just knowing who you were. The helmet of salvation is about knowing who you are. Look at these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Pastor Ted read at the outset of our time together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Some of you need to hear that today because your problem isn't forgetting about your past. Your problem is wallowing in it and thinking you're un- that somehow you're never going to be used by God. And what you need to know is that Jesus makes all things new. The old has passed away, Paul goes on to say, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's why churches need to speak when acts of domestic terrorism happen. It's because it's our job. We're not just about getting people saved. The role of the church is to be God's agent in in an in a cosmic redemption that brings reconciliation doesn't mean that we're deluded into thinking we're going to somehow usher in the millennial kingdom or that we're going to have utopia because the church does the right thing. But it's understanding that God through Christ has given the church the power to bring that ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? That is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Isn't that good news? God doesn't count my trespass. Man, I got truckloads of them. God doesn't hold it against me. And he entrusts to me the very same reconciliation that he gave to me. That's who I am. You know, another one of my favorite movies is The Bourne Identity. I'm outing myself today. Jason Bourne. At the beginning, is is picked up by a fishing boat. He's bullet riddled, suffering from amnesia, and throughout this whole movie, he's reminded, uh, even through his own muscle memory, that oh wow, I must have a black belt and something, right? I mean, he's got these these little glimpses of who he is, but he never really knows who he is. And every time I watch that film and I think of that plot, I go, that that's a lot of Christians. Their muscle memory gives them occasional victory every once in a while, but they don't really know, they don't really know who they are. And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, the one thing Satan wants to keep you from doing is looking in the mirror and seeing that reality. Because that, that will usher you right out of that gaslighted narrative that he's got some of you trapped in. If you've turned from your sins, you've had them absorbed. In the substitutionary death of Christ, you're empowered by His resurrection and new life. This passage says, this is who you are, a new creation created in God's image, a co-heir with Jesus Christ and an overwhelming conqueror through Him who loves you. I get the sense some of you need to hear that today. You need to be reminded of who you are because you have been put down or perhaps you've even put yourself down. Maybe you even... you. It, Some of you grew up in a dysfunctional home and all that abuse that you endured or abuse that you witnessed has led you to believe Satan's gaslighted story that God doesn't care. You need to know in Christ you are loved and you are loved unconditionally. Some of you may have a horrible past that Satan continues to keep haunting you with and, and telling you that, that you're no good. We've been talking a lot about the vision for covenant around here. We've been talking about seven years, at least two church plants, at least two satellite campuses. What part and parcel of that is to begin this fall training teachers and preachers because we need more than one. Amen? We do. We need as many people sounding that trumpet as possible. We need as many people expounding on the Word of God as possible. We need as many men and women equipping the saints for the work of service as possible. But you know what? I'm almost convinced that in the midst of sharing that vision, some of you just automatically canceled yourselves out. You said, I'll never, ever be able to do it. I'm either not smart enough I'm either not uh, not good enough pastor you don't know what's in my past stop living in Satan's gaslighted story stop it just just stop it yeah you know what you have any idea what your pastor's guilty of right after I turned 18 I was invited to to a church to share a story with some younger men and they said because our, our football team had just won the state championship in South Carolina And so they said, would you come in? Because that's, you remember what I talked about the other week? We love success stories, right? Let's let a state champion walk in the room and let all the little boys go, oh, and then let him talk about Jesus. And then that'll fix everything. And oh yeah, by the way, Joel, would you wear your ring? It won't fit me anymore because I got fat, but I still got a ring. And so I walked into that room with that ring. I talked about what life was like on the gridiron. I challenged those kids not just in the sports arena as well as in life and then i punctuated it with no matter what happens kids you make sure you're following jesus and then i flew to miami and got on a cruise ship and got drunk you didn't know that about your pastor did you yeah, and you, you worried about your past this was 30 years ago by the way okay not not last week 30 years ago it's been a while There is repentance. There's a process of restoration. I'm not saying if you're trapped in something now that you can preach tomorrow, that's not what I'm suggesting. But here's what I am saying some of you have been trapped by a lie that you're of no use to God because of your past. Well, if that's the case, all of us are useless. And that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that if we're in Christ, we are a new creation, that in Christ we are loved, that in Christ we are forgiven and changed. I got a good friend of mine named Brian Worth. He pastors out in California in the Long Beach area, uh, a church called Chapel of Change. This is his picture with his wife, Laura, there. That's actually a a vow renewal ceremony because it's just within the last year or so. Looks like a pretty good upstanding kid, doesn't he? Guy, I'm sorry, upstanding guy. He's like in his early 30s now, so I think of him and I go, hey, kid, um, I must be getting old. There's a reason that that's a wedding renewal. It's because their actual wedding took place while he was in prison for a gang-related murder. Before he came to know the Lord. And now now he's planted and is growing a Wesleyan congregation in Southern California called Chapel of Change. I love this brother. First time I met him was in Vietnam. And um, I just, his story just is amazing. One of these days, maybe by God's grace, we'll get him out here to share that with you. But, but in order for that to happen, he had to come out of that gaslit story, that narrative that, that Satan had convinced him of. Take up the helmet of salvation. Be reminded not just of who you were, but of who you are. Now, here's the confidence that you can have in that, because some of you, there's still a disconnect. It's like, but how can I... How can I bridge that gap? You you can't. (laughs) You can't. But Jesus can. That's the third thing we learn about the helmet of salvation. It's about knowing what God has done, not what you did to turn over a new leaf. That's not the gospel, that's moralism. That stuff will damn you to hell. You better get away from that stuff. The gospel is about what Jesus did and what God has done. Throughout history, not just in that moment when you came to know the Lord, but throughout history. See, often when we use the word salvation, we're speaking about a time when we came to know the Lord, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we prayed a prayer, when we all kinds of vernacular that we use to describe that moment. Salvation certainly includes that moment, but salvation, the term as it's used in Scripture, is an umbrella term. It it involves so much more than that, and it involves more of what God has done and far less than you might think of what you did or something you prayed or something you believed. This is about God. It includes this moment when we came to know the Lord, but it includes everything else, starting with a number of things. So in order to see this, we got to back up five chapters. We've been in Ephesians 6. Paul's referencing the helmet of salvation. Well, all the way back in the first chapter of Ephesians, he's described everything God has done from the foundation of the world all the way to the present with regard to salvation. It begins with election. Look at Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. God stood before history even began. He looked through time. He saw you. He knew you were unworthy. He knew that apart from his grace, you would be worthless. And he reached out and into history from outside of history and he said i want that one if you have believed in jesus that is who you are you are god's beloved chosen why so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us don't be afraid of that term by the way that's a term that that term is like cement for your for your spiritual feet it 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 lands you and guarantees you that god's love for me truly is unconditional that i am his adopted son through jesus christ this starts with election but it didn't end there because god can't just choose to save and then sweep your sin under the rug the wages of sin the bible tells us is death separation from god wrath an eternity separated from his love And so God can't just stand outside of time and space and say, I choose this one, I choose that one. Now through the person and the work of Jesus, he enters time and space. We don't just have election, but we have atonement. Two verses later, Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So from eternity past, God chose you. Then he sent Jesus into time and space to save you. And then comes the rest of it. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In other words, to give you and me a grace that we wouldn't just hold into ourselves, but that would spill over into the rest of the created order and bring still others to faith in Jesus. All this opens the same letter to Ephesus that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And so when Paul says God's given you a helmet to wear, this is what that helmet looks like. Be absolutely assured that when Satan tempts you or tries to, to bring you to despair by presenting some other reality, when he's gaslighting you into a way of thinking that can damage you, God has given you genuine reality. Know who you were. Know who you are. Know what God has done to bring you to be who you are. And then one final thing is know in light of all this what you must do. Know what you must do. This is what it takes to wear the helmet of salvation. This is going to take us to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. If anyone come, would come after me, let him deny himself. And notice notice the language here. Paul says you should take up the helmet how do you take up the helmet? Jesus tells us by taking up something else. You must, he must take up his cross daily. Yeah. The, the, the weight of that sometimes gets lost on us because we wear crosses like really pretty jewelry. But imagine a wear, wearing a gold electric chair or a gold noose. That's what the cross was. It was an instrument of execution. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, take up your instrument of execution. At the outset, I said, this is a mental battle. Our enemy seeks to lead us astray with false narratives about ourselves. You know the easiest way to get caught up in a false narrative about yourself is when you make your life all about yourself. That's the easiest way to do it. When your first thoughts are of yourself rather than other people, a false narrative is coming. And Satan is more than happy to accommodate you in building that gaslit narrative. He can do that for you. This is why Jesus said you, the answer, the entrance into the kingdom, the, the, the way you put this helmet on is you deny yourself. Don't build your life around self-interest and self-fulfillment and self-glorification. If you do, you will never truly follow Jesus. You just won't. Lay down your wants and your desires, and you put your trust in him, and you do it daily. Obey his commands and walk in his footsteps, because the enemy will lie to you, and you and I, we will lie to ourselves. Put on the helmet provided by a God who will never lie to you. Deny yourself so that you can always walk in the truth. Otherwise, you'll you'll just believe your own lies. You know, some of the most... Some of the most encouraging moments in my ministry actually don't happen up here. They happen in my office or at a restaurant or somewhere when I'm talking with somebody and all of a sudden the Lord, not me, somehow or another he uses a dumb redneck, and the Lord sets somebody free from a gaslit narrative in which they have been living for years, sometimes decades, and they realize it and they are set free. And to watch them come out from under that delusion is just one of the great rewards of being a pastor. To watch somebody who's labored with all kinds of unnecessary guilt who can finally say, this was not my fault. To watch someone who wallows in their past see what the death and the resurrection of Jesus means for their present and just watch their eyes open like a switch flips inside their head. But you know, conversely... Some of the most depressing things about being a pastor are watching people come in and talk and leave and willfully remain deluded because they like Satan's story better. This is just better. This is what keeps you trapped in it. And you keep justifying yourself. You keep looking for fulfillment in a relationship, in a job, in your status, but you never find it Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis that will just remind us of this really simple fact. If If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We need to look at the one who has promised us that other world to get us there. This morning, God is calling all of us to put on the helmet of salvation, to change our way of thinking to stop believing the lies of the enemy and to wake up to the truth. And for some of you, I'm absolutely convinced you don't even know Jesus yet. And so putting on that helmet for you this morning involves recognizing your current status, that you are cut off from God, separated from him as a result of your sins, wholly responsible before him, headed at this moment to an eternity, separated from him, but that that doesn't need to be so. And you just need to turn from that sin, put your faith and your trust in Him, and put on that helmet for the very first time and start walking in the truth that Jesus has died for your sins, has been raised so that you can have eternal life, has empowered you by His Spirit to be an overwhelming conqueror over everything. Come out of that gaslit narrative that you and Satan have built together and come to know the way, the truth, and the life. Do it today. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this wonderful group of people and for the awesome privilege of being able to share the truth with them. And Father, how we long in the midst of such a violent, vitriolic culture for a day when we'll stop living lives like this. Lord, whether it's a gunman in a Walmart or, or just, you know, someone living in sin or or any other thing that's going on in this world at the at the end of the day those are people who've been living a lie for a really really long time that just vomited itself out lord would you would you protect us your people from that would you remind us of the things constantly that we've talked about today who we were who we are what you have done and what we must do help us lord to take up our crosses to leave behind self-interest and self-glorification to cling tightly to you for those who haven't done that at all in this life, I pray that today is the day that they come and that they, make, that, that, that they declare you to be what you already are. I started to say, make you, Lord. What a stupid thing to say, Lord. You are, Lord, but that they would declare you as such and have their sins forgiven. Father, regardless of whether someone here this morning knows you or doesn't know you, I pray that everyone here walks out of here not just knowing you, but empowered in this truth that we've been given today. Father, the the mental games that we have sometimes even willfully allowed Satan to play, because some of them, frankly, are just very attractive, that we would lay them down, begin to walk in the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.